This is Our American Stories. You're about to hear one of the most remarkable stories, one of the most remarkable women, and how she triumphantly shined one of the clearest lights on one of the darkest moments in history. On May 10th, 1940, Adolf Hitler's Germany invaded the Netherlands overtaking the country in five days. On bombing raids, the German Luftwaffe dropped over 97 tons of explosives on the city of Rotterdam, forcing the Dutch to surrender. During the subsequent Nazi occupation, over 100,000 Dutch Jews were rounded up and taken to concentration camps. Few would survive. In the face of these horrors and at the threat of losing their own liberty, An elderly father and his two daughters risked everything to save the lives of these persecuted people. This is their true story, based on the testimony of the trio's only survivor. Her name is Corey Ten Boom. The youngest of four children, Corey was born in Hallam, Holland in 1892 to Casper and Cornelia Ten Boom. Casper Ten Boom, or Hallam's grand old man as he was known, was a devoted father and husband and a man of high moral character, very much respected by the local community. The Ten Boom home was a typical Dutch house. It was tall and narrow. The bottom floor served as the store for their family-run watch and clock shop. The floors above were their living quarters. The house, or baye as they called it, served them well when it was just two parents and four children. But when their elderly aunts moved in with them, they needed more space. So Father Ten Boom bought the house next door in order to bridge the houses together. But the problem was the floor levels didn't line up, and the addition had two floors while the baye had three. Here's Pamela Rosewell Moore, Corey Ten Boom's close friend and companion. So you, it, it fools me to this day, because you never quite know which landing you're on and which house you're in. The different levels made for a very odd house but it was a peculiarity that would play an important role in their clandestine work during World War II. Corey's life was a happy one. She learned many valuable and important lessons from her father. And when Corey finally fell in love, she fantasized deeply about a marvelous marriage, as many young women do. However, her heart was broken and her dreams were shattered when the young man showed up at her house for a visit with his fiance. Somehow, Corey's social standing did not meet with his mother's expectations. Here's Corey on that heartbreaking period. It was as if my heart was broken that moment. And after they had gone, I went straight to my uh, bedroom. And I said, Lord Jesus, I belong to you, lock, stock, and barrel. I surrender this part of my being that is wounded. Corey dedicated herself to the care of her aged live-in aunts, and with her sister Betsy, they nursed them until the time of their passing. The two sisters also worked with the youth in their city, hosting Bible studies, and Corey initiated a club for the mentally handicapped. She loved them dearly. Children, children, come, come, have some cookies. She wrote a book called Common Sense Not Needed, just a little pamphlet book about her 
work among those who weren't intellectually as able as others. They can do anything. And she taught them from the Bible. They can do anything. Tragedy struck in 1918 when their mother suffered a cerebral hemorrhage. While she remained bedridden, Betsy took on the housework and Corey began helping in the watch shop where the family began seeing Corey's keen business sense. Due to Corey's management skills, the family improved their financial situation. She became Holland's first licensed woman watchmaker. She went to Switzerland and did a, a course in watchmaking and watch repair under the Swiss, who were, of course, the leaders, and came back and uh, became the main helper to Father Timbone in his watch shop. Then, in 1921, Corey's mother passed away. Years went by, and though war was looming in Europe, it was but a shadow in the Netherlands. That is, until the unimaginable happened. Hitler's Germany invaded Holland on May 10, 1940. Within weeks, life changed drastically for everyone in Holland. I will never forget that through these streets, and I saw tanks, and it was a real performance, this big, huge army going through the streets to make impression on us. And I can still remember these boots marching over the streets. Dum, dum, dum. The beginning was not so terrible. We had only five days war, then we had to surrender, and it seemed that things were a little bit the same as before. The Nazis confiscated all radios in the Netherlands. They did not want anyone to have information about the war. Any other radios in the house? No, none. But the ten booms managed to keep one. They kept it hidden under one of the steps of stairs, and during the night, they would gather around their radio and listen to the news that came in from the BBC in London. They would also listen to the words of their queen, who at the beginning of the war sought refuge in London. By wireless from the BBC, Her Majesty the Queen of the Netherlands. Fellow Hollanders, the lights have gone out over free Holland. Where only two weeks ago there was a free nation of men and women brought up in the cherished tradition of Christian civilization, there is now the stillness of death. But they also listened to the speeches of Adolf Hitler. I heard her say a couple of times, it started out in a normal voice. And then the voice got more and more excited and higher and higher, and in the end, it was the voice of a demon. It was the voice of a demon. When we come back, the life of Corey Temboom, here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories. The life of Corey Ten Boom continues. The Nazis had confiscated all the radios in the Netherlands, as we learned in the last segment. But the Ten Booms kept one for themselves. Let's pick up the story from there. After the German invasion of the Netherlands, the Nazis took further steps to consolidate their power. It began slowly. Take your stop. But the Nazi propaganda machine spewed out its voice. Take your stop. The Jews were forced to line up in order to receive a patch to be worn on their clothing. Take your stop. It was the identifying yellow star of David. Take your stop. A fed-up Father Ten Boom waited in line to receive his star. Next. You shouldn't be here. Take your star. I've come for my star. They're for Jews. If we all had them, they wouldn't know the difference between a Gentile and a Jew. Go home. I will wear my star, and I won't take it off until God tells me to take it off. The God of Abraham and Isaac, and my God too. But quickly, Jewish stores were attacked, their houses raided, and eventually the Jews themselves were rounded up. An underground resistance to hide and protect Jews was quickly established. Dr. Heemstra. And the cause literally showed up on the Ten Boom's doorstep when a doctor arrived hiding a Jewish orphan baby under his coat. A local pastor who was visiting the Bay that day was unwilling to take any personal risk and refused to take care of the Jewish child. It is the law, and Christians must obey the law. Think what you are risking for the sake of one Jewish baby. Good day, Temple. How can that man call himself a Christian? If a mouse lives in the cookie jar, that doesn't necessarily make him a cookie. Father Ten Boom stepped up. What do we do? Corey, we are meant to obey the law of the state if it does not go against a higher law of God. We will keep the child. Betsy and Corey rallied around their father's decision. He's beautiful. Corey's experience organizing youth groups will now earn a huge payout. Here's Corey. And once we heard that in a Jewish orphanage in Amsterdam, all the babies had to be killed because they were Jewish babies. When we heard that, our boy said, we will save them, and we will steal them. And they went to that orphanage, and they stole all the hundred babies. <laughs> you will say, how is it possible? I will tell you a secret. You know, sometimes there came to us good Germans who were soldiers in the army and they said we don't like to work any longer for Adolf Hitler we will not kill the Jewish people can you help us and I always said sure I will help you just come in it didn't take long for Jews to show up at the Baye desperately looking for refuge mothers with children young people business owners professors the elderly all facing the threat of incarceration because they were Jews. No one was turned away. They had to have extra ration cards, and the the ration cards weren't easy to come by. The government was supplying them with food for three people. 
And of course, there are a lot more people in the house than that. Soon, the Baye was filled with Jews. And due to food shortages and the lack of ration cards, which couldn't be counterfeited, Corey took a huge risk. All Jews, Mr. Konstra. She approached Fred Konstra and his wife. All ration cards are checked. Corey had taught Konstra's mentally handicapped daughter in her church group. I should not have asked you. Since Nazi occupation, Konstra had been working as a ration card distributor in the food office. How many cards do you need? Corey boldly asked for 100 ration cards. 100? And Konstra courageously agreed to supply them to Corey. I know someone who might do it. His desperate wife stormed out, knowing that he had to account for each card to his Nazi supervisor. So, he faked a robbery. It'd have to be tied and gagged. Asking a close friend to beat him up to make his alibi seem more convincing. It worked. We have a secret code. Fearing their telephone was tapped, the Ten Booms devised a secret code in order to identify whether the Jew was a male Hello? or female. I have a woman's watch that needs repair. That meant that a Jew seeking a hiding place would be arriving. They also used a red triangular-shaped sign in their front window to let the new arrivals know whether it was safe to come inside. When the plain backside of the sign was displayed, Professor, they knew to stay away. Will you do us the honor of asking the blessing? In order to keep the housebound guests occupied, the Ten Booms created work schedules and activities. They also held nightly Bible studies. So often it was just like one big family together, you know, not thinking of being, must have been living sort of in the balance of the real life they were actually living, where they had enough to eat and were looking after each other and loved each other. And the knowledge that uh, one day the Nazis might come. But things continued to get more difficult. Corey's nephews and even her sister Nolly were arrested and imprisoned. But fortunately, they were released. What do you do if the guest staff comes? The possibility of a raid on the Baye was very real. If one did occur, there was no place for the Jews to hide. You will have a visitor. Something had to be done. There was a famous architect who made these hiding places. And that was his part in underground work. Very important. I will never forget that he came upstairs and through the whole house to see where it was possible. And because this room was the highest of the house, he chose this, my tiny bedroom. I do. Perfect. The wall was made of brick, and that was the secret of the hiding place. When they started to knock at it, it was solid, so they didn't find it. They had to creep into this opening of the hiding place, and then when they were in it, they could close the backside of the closet so that you couldn't see there was an opening. A non-privileged Jew will be unable to show his face in the Netherlands. For two eventful years, the Lord allowed us to help hundreds of people escape the Nazi death camps. Until February 28, 1944. Once there came a man to me. 
and said, were you safe? My wife. Yes, my wife. She is arrested. She's been arrested. She has saved Jewish people. She's Jewish. And now she is in a police station. And there is one policeman who will run the risk to set her free if we pay him 600 guilders. But I have no money. And then she'll need a place to hide. That man was a betrayer. Around the side door. Come on. The sick Corey agreed to help the man and then retired to her room. At five o'clock, the doorbell sounded. Yes. I need the money. Now. Something didn't seem right to Betsy. He pushed the hidden buzzer to alert the house and began stalling. He finally opened the door only to be pushed back by the storming Nazi Gestapo. Corey was awakened when the Jews burst into her room and crawled into the hiding place. The unusual layout of the Bayer slowed down the Nazis. By the time they got to her room, Corey was pretending to sleep. The Gestapo ripped her out of her bed. Help! Where are the Jews? Lord Jesus, help me! Little did the Nazis know that the Jews were just feet away, listening to the horror of Corey being beaten as they sat protected in their hiding place. The Nazis began tearing the house apart, but had no success finding the Jews. As the ten booms were led to an awaiting truck, Corey was horrified to see Betsy and her nephew also bruised and bleeding. God is with us. As Father Tenboom struggled to get into the truck, a Nazi officer softened for a moment. Tenboom, give me your word, you will behave yourself, and you can die in your bed, old man, where you belong. If I stay behind, I will open my door to anyone who knocks for help. And when we come back, the story of Corey Ten Boom continues right after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue the story of Corey Ten Boom. She and her family being hauled off from their home by the Nazis. As the truck drove off, Close it up. Corey was shocked to see hundreds of people lined up along the sidewalk. See the house. Corey knew that they had come, regardless of the personal risk, to show their support for the Ten Booms, who did nothing more than offer kindness and protection to innocent human beings who were being hunted down like wild animals. They were taken from the police station to the prison in Scheveningen on the Dutch coast. And it was there that Father and Betsy and Corrie, at least Betsy and Corrie, saw their father for the last time. They were lined up with their noses to the wall, and Father Tembom quoted Psalm 91.1, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High 
shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And they didn't see him again. God be with you, Papa! Weeks later, on her 52nd birthday, Corey received a letter from her sister, Nolly, notifying her of their father's death. But for Corey, there was peace in this travesty. She recalled something that happened at the Baye a long time ago. In this house, in 1844, there happened something. A minister said to my grandfather, pray for the peace of Jerusalem that is written in the Bible. My grandfather had never thought about it, but he saw that it was a commandment in the Bible, and he invited his friends, and they came in this house every week and had a prayer meeting for the Jews. I remember that when Father was warned by his friends, and they said, don't have always Jewish people in that house. It will end up in prison for you. And Father said, I'm too old for prison life. But when that will happen, it will be an honor to me to give my life for God's ancient people. And that's what really happened. While the letter bore difficult news, it also bore news of great hope. It's safe now. Corey noticed that the handwritten address on the envelope seemed to be sloping towards the stamp. Peeled it off and used the code word for the Jewish people, and it said in Dutch, Allah, or Lord, you're saying, Feilach. All the, all the watches are safe. While in prison, Corey was interrogated repeatedly by Nazi Lieutenant Roms. Would you mind telling me where you got these extra Russian cards? Then one day, he stopped asking specific questions about the underground, sat back, and looked Corey in the eyes. Will you tell me about your other activities? Corey eagerly sat up straight in the armchair. Now she had something to talk about. My sister and I held Bible classes until such meetings were forbidden. And we worked with retarded children. How? Excuse me? How would you work with them? We taught them about God. (coughs) What a waste. (coughs) If you wanted converts, surely one normal person is worth all the halfwits in the world. Corey smiled. Here's what the subsequent exchange sounded like. I would like to tell you the truth, if I may, Lieutenant. Of course. Go right ahead. The officer leaned forward in his chair and picked up a pencil. Corey took a deep breath. You and I are human, and we look on the outside of a person. But God looks at a person's heart. He knows whether there is light or darkness inside the person. And that is what is important to him. Lieutenant Roms did not say anything, so Corey went on. Some people have great darkness in their hearts. Are you one of those people, Lieutenant? Today's session is over. To her surprise, the following morning, a guard brought her back to Lieutenant Roms. Here's Corey on what happened next. And so it happened that suddenly he showed me papers found in my house. And to my horror, I saw names, addresses, and particulars that could mean not only my death sentence, but the death sentence of my family and friends who were in prison. The judge said, can you explain these papers? I said, no. 
account. And I felt terrible, terrible unhappy. But he knew better than I how dangerous the papers were. And he turned, he opened the door of the stove and threw all the papers into the flames. My, how happy I was that moment. If you had told me that I could be 100% happy when I was in a prison in the hands of an enemy, I should never have believed that. But when I saw these flames destroy these horrible papers, it was as if for the first time I understood Colossians 2.14, where it's written that Jesus has taken the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, has taken them out of the way, and nailed them at the cross. After spending nearly three months in solitary confinement, Corey, along with other prisoners, were taken to an awaiting train. And there, to her great delight and relief, she caught a glimpse of her sister Betsy, who was helping other prisoners board a train. Corey pushed her way through prisoners, calling out her sister's name. Finally, the two sisters were reunited. But as the doors of the train closed, they had no idea where they were going. Days later, the train finally came to a stop at a Nazi concentration camp in the Netherlands. But their stay was only temporary. And then came D-Day, the 6th of June, when the Germans apparently had received knowledge that there was going to be movement of troops and decided to empty their concentration camp in the Netherlands. And then they moved on to the real home. Ravensbrück. Oh my God. Ravensbrück. The most notorious extermination camp for women located in northern Germany. It was also a training center for female SS guards. The SS was Hitler's paramilitary organization. And these female guards were infamously inhumane and cruel. Upon arrival, Corey and Betsy were forced to strip naked for Nazi guard inspection. Up until this point, Corey had managed to hide her smuggled Bible from the Nazi soldiers. So while waiting in line, she began to pray. Now open up a way for us to get into the gates of hell. But without clothes for cover, she was doomed. It's in God's hands now. When it was her turn to be searched, the guards got distracted by another prisoner. And Corey walked right through inspection. Life. They were thrown into barracks 28. They discovered that it was known to have so many fleas that the guards just put the food down inside the door and left them to it. When I was surrounded by people who had had a training in cruelties and the Bible was forbidden, but we had every day twice a Bible message in that room where we were together in the concentration camps with 700 prisoners. And of course, she learned that um, there was a crematorium. It was obvious, it was seen. And that she didn't know whether she'd be the next person to go into it. Women were taken away very often, being told they were going to have a shower, so they got all happy. Uh, but when they got there, water didn't come out of the shower, but gas. So that got around. So when the people came in to say, give out the names of the people, you're going to have a shower. They didn't know it might be a shower, but possibly it would end in the crematorium. 
Betsy's health was declining. And because she was not able to work as fast as the guards demanded, she was beaten savagely. Oh, Jesus. Show me how to live in this place. And when we come back, the final segment in this hour-long look at the life of Corey Ten Boom. This is Our American Stories. Turn to the final segment of the life, this extraordinary life, the life of Corey Ten Boom. At night, Betsy and Corey held Bible studies in their barracks. In all circumstances. On one such night, they were challenged by one of their fellow prisoners. And to the mindless, the word sounds so comforting. But you must believe you are God smells that stench from those chimneys and refuses to do anything. All I can say is that the same God you are accusing came and lived in the midst of our world. He was beaten and he was mocked and he died on a cross and he did it for love for us And why do you think you, a God of love, sent you here? To obey him. If you know him, you don't have to know why. While Betsy's faith soared under all this hardship, Corey's was breaking. Do you think I haven't prayed? But I hate them. I hate every Nazi in this place. No hate, Corey. No hate. To Corey's consternation, Betsy pitied the Nazis. Even the traitor back home who reported the ten booms to the Nazi officials. Forgive them for Jesus' sake. As their situation in the extermination camp got worse, Betsy began experiencing visions of a brighter future. Betsy said, the Lord has told me that we are going to have a house in the Netherlands and it's beautiful, Corrie, I've seen it. The Lord showed it to me. It was a very big house of people who've suffered a lot psychologically in the war. We'll take them in, we'll look after them and we'll we'll have a garden for them. They can plant flowers. It would be so good for them. You know, Corey, Betsy also shared another assurance she received from God. We're going to be free before the new year. Both of us. Corey clung to this promise with all her heart. You'll see. Until just a few days later, on December 16th, 1944, Betsy died. I'm not going to die, Corey. Her body was placed in a rundown latrine. Betsy next to the others who had recently passed. Corey, you must look. Otherwise, you'll never know. 
It was in this place where Corey said her goodbyes. She's beautiful. Corey wondered whether Betsy's last words regarding their release was a result of delirium. Then, while standing for roll call one evening on December 28, 1944, Corey received this announcement. The following prisoners will come forward and stand by for selection and pickup. Seven, eight, nine, nine, two. Died last night. Six, six, seven, three, zero. Corey. Slowly, she stepped out from the ranks. Assuming she would never return, she handed her precious Bible to a prisoner and desperately declared, God is with you. Obediently, she followed the SS guard, but not to the work fields or the trucks or the gas chamber. Corey was taken into an office. Sentence completed, 21st, 1244. Without any explanation, Corey was given a pair of undersized shoes, an old dress, a hat, a coat, and her release papers. Soon, she was walking past the tower guards with their vicious attack dogs, past the electrified barbed wire fences, and stood at the extermination camp gates. As she passed the gates, Betsy's words came to her mind. You know, Corey... We're going to be free before the new year. We will. I know it. Years later, Corey would find out just how miraculous her release was. Years later, it was learned my release came through a clerical error. What some might call a mistake. Not long after I was set free. Women my age were put to death. Corey wandered through the city for days. Eventually, she made her way back to Holland. Then, on May 1st, 1945, news quickly buzzed through Holland that Adolf Hitler committed suicide in a bunker in Berlin. Seven days later, the bells of St. Bavo Church rang out. The Nazis surrendered. Holland was free. Much of what Betsy told Corey had come to pass. There was more that Betsy had shared with her. They won't need concentration camps after the war, Corey. They won't need them at all. And we'll find one, and we'll clean it, and we'll paint it. On the outside, it'll be lovely green, like flowers coming up in the spring. And we'll look after them, and we'll stay with them. Corey said, will this be after... Will we do have the house first, or will this be the first thing we do? Well, we go to Germany. Oh, no, we'll have the house first. And then we'll be in the, in the new concentration camp, which will be turned into a nice home. The house was indeed provided in Holland. There, to the consternation of the locals, Corey took in the ostracized Dutch who had collaborated with the Nazis. She did her best to rehabilitate them and help them face their mistakes and be reintegrated into society. Then, Corey directed her attention onto the second part of Betsy's vision, Germany. After some time, the German authorities came to her and they said, we want to tell you that we've got a building that we might, you might think suitable. It's a concentration camp in Darmstadt. So she traveled there 
And so she didn't go to a hotel or somewhere. She stayed with them and could hear all the clattering and the talking going on and ministered with them for a long time. The third part of Betsy's vision was told to Corey at Ravensbrook. We must tell people that no pit is so deep that he is not deeper still. They will believe us because we were here. That love was tested during one of her early speaking engagements. Corrie was speaking in a church in Germany at the end of the 40s, and she was in front of a group of people who'd gathered there. And at the back of the group, she saw a man who wouldn't look into her eyes. And suddenly, and with a bit of a shock, she recognized him as a guard from Ravensbrück who had been particularly cruel to her sister Betsy. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing, writes Corey. He said, How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, says Corey. And I, who had preached so often to the people the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. There was hatred and bitterness in my heart. I remembered how my dying sister had suffered through the cruelties of that man. But I know from the Bible that hatred means murder in God's eyes. And I said, oh, Father, forgive me in Jesus' name my hatred. And the Lord took it away. And I said, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have brought into my heart God's love through the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, that your love in me is victorious over my hatred. And that moment my hatred disappeared and I said, Brother, give me your hand. I have forgiven you all. Corey said that when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. For over 30 years, Corey Ten Boom crisscrossed the globe sharing his story of faith on every continent. Then, on February 28, 1977, exactly 33 years to the day that the Ten Boom family was taken away by the Gestapo, the 85-year-old Corey immigrated to Orange County, California. She put away her passport, unpacked her suitcase for the last time, declaring emphatically that it was all right because the Lord had promised her that she would write books and produce five films, that she would reach more people than she could ever hope to find face-to-face. In 1978, she suffered two strokes. The first, rendering her unable to speak, and the second, resulting in paralysis. She died on her 91st birthday on April 15, 1983, after a third stroke. She is buried in Los Angeles, California. Her gravestone reads, Corey Ten Boom, 1892-1983. Jesus is Victor. Yes, I am Corrie Tamboom. I promised my sister I would tell it. And I tell you. What a story. And it all ties back to America at the end of Corrie Tamboom's life. And even if it didn't, we would have still told this story. Because in the end, it was American GIs, Canadians, and Australians liberating those camps. And always what happened in Europe 
we'll talk about here on Our American Stories in the 1940s. Corey Tenboom, great work, Greg, great work, Faith. What a life remembered here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and now it's time for This Day in Music History. Take it away, Jesse. Born this day in music history in 1909, American country musician Mother Maybelle Carter, best known as a member of the historic Carter Family Act in the 1920s and 30s. She was also the mother of June Carter Cash and mother-in-law to the one and only Johnny Cash. Maybell, who played auto harp and banjo as well as the group's guitarist, created a unique sound for the group with her innovative scratch style of guitar playing, where she used her thumb to play melody on the bass and middle strings and her index finger to fill out the rhythm. And in 1960, this day in music history, a band known as the Silver Beatles auditioned for promoter Larry Parnes and singer Billy Fury for a job as Fury's backing group. Parnes was also looking for backing groups with his lesser-known acts, and the Silver Beatles were selected as a backing group for singer Johnny Gentle's upcoming tour of Scotland. The group had changed its name from the Beatles to the Silver Beatles after Brian Casser of Cass and the Casanovas remarked that the name the Beatles was, quote, ridiculous. He suggested that they use the name Long John and the Silver Beatles, but John Lennon refused to be referred to as Long John. And in 1963, the Rolling Stones recorded the Chuck Berry song, Come On, at Olympic Studios in London. This, the band's first release, was issued on the 7th of June in 1963 by Decca Records. And this day in music history, 1969, Frank Sinatra's version of My Way made it to the British top ten for the first time. And uh, now the end is near. Over the next three years, it re-entered the top 50 singles chart for eight different occasions. Paul Anka rewrote the original French song for Sinatra after he told Anka that he was quitting the music business. Anka changed the melodic structure and lyrics to the song with Sinatra in mind. It reached number 27 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart and number 2 on the Easy Listening chart in the U.S. I've lived a life that's full i traveled each and Every highway and more, much more than this, I did it my way. I shot the sheriff, but I did not shoot the dead. And this day in music history, 1974, Eric Clapton recorded a cover of Bob Marley's I Shot the Sheriff. Clapton's version was a number one hit in the U.S. and the only number one of his career. 
Clapton's recording gave Marley a big boost as it exposed him to a rock audience. The song tells a story of a man who shoots a sheriff who is harassing him but is wrongly accused of killing his deputy. In this day in music history, 1986, the band Falco was at number one in the UK singles chart with Rock Me Amadeus. Falco became the first ever Austrian act to score a UK and US number one hit single and the first German-speaking artist to achieve a number one on the US charts. Falco died in February of 98 when his car collided with a bus in the Dominican Republic. His estate claims that he sold over 20 million albums and 15 million singles, which makes him the best-selling Austrian singer of all time. Also this day in music history, 1986, the Pet Shop Boys went number one on the U.S. singles chart with West End Girls. It was the duo's first U.S. number one hit and also number one in the U.K. In this day in music history, 1999, American singer, songwriter, poet, cartoonist, screenwriter, and author of children's books, Shel Silverstein, died of a heart attack at age 57. He wrote A Boy Named Sue for Johnny Cash, which Silverstein won a Grammy for in 1970, and many songs for Dr. Hook, including Sylvia's Mother and the cover of The Rolling Stone. According to Shel Silverstein's biographer, Mitch Myers, it was June Carter Cash who encouraged her husband to perform A Boy Named Sue. Silverstein introduced it to Johnny and June at what they called a guitar pull, where musicians would pass a guitar around and play their songs. Cash was surprised at how well the song went over with his audience. The rough, spontaneous performance with sparse accompaniment was included in the Johnny Cash at San Quentin album, ultimately becoming one of Cash's biggest hits. And that's this day in music history. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Well, my daddy left home when I was three, and he didn't leave much to Ma and me. Just this old guitar and an empty bottle of booze. Now, I don't blame him because he run and hid, but the meanest thing that he ever did was before he left, he went and named me Sue. Well, he must have thought that it was quite a joke, and it got a lot of laughs from lots of folks. Seems I had to fight my whole life through. Some gal would giggle and I'd get red And some guy'd laugh and I'd bust his head I'll tell you, life ain't easy for a boy named Sue <laughs> Well, I grew up quick and I grew up mean My fists got hard, my wits got keen Roamed from town to town to hide my shame But I made me a vow to the moon and stars I'd search the honky-tonks and bars And kill that man that give me that awful name well, it was Gatlinburg in mid-July And I'd just hit town and my throat was dry I thought I'd stop and have myself a brew At an old saloon on a street of mud There at a table dealing stud Such a dirty mangy dog that named me Sue Well, I knew that snake was my own sweet dad From a worn-out picture that my mother had And I knew that scar on his cheek and his evil eye 
He was big and bent and gray and old And I looked at him and my blood ran cold And I said, my name is Sue How do you do? Now you gonna die Yeah, that's what I told him Well, I hit him hard right between the eyes And he went down, but to my surprise Come up with a knife and cut off a piece of my ear But I busted a chair right across his teeth And we crashed through the wall and into the street Kicking and a-gouging in the mud and the blood and the beard I tell you, I fought tougher men But I really can't remember when This is Our American Stories, and today we have Faith bringing us another story from the Villages in Florida. And it's not just a retirement community, folks. The Villages have over 600 holes of golf, 2,200 clubs, and over 150,000 residents over the age of 55. And we've been sending Faith, our intrepid 21-year-old producer, to get stories from those residents. Take it away, Faith. Margie Bates is an 87-year-old villager and has lived in the villages for quite some time now. And on a beautiful Friday morning, she invited me over to her home so that she could share her story with me. (laughs) Good morning, Margie. How are you? How are you? Good. You ready for sunshine today? It's warm outside. Huh? You feeling good today? Yeah, I am. I'm feeling good most days, you know, just get a bit draggy. But I'm getting over that, I think. Before we get into how Margie got to the villages, however, did you notice her accent? Well, how did she even end up in the States? Because Margie, she grew up in London, England with her family. Now, this is probably not the London that you are thinking of, with Big Ben, the giant Ferris wheel, the London Eye, and the changing of the guard. This was London during World War II. Watching dogfights and hearing bomb sirens growing up, can't imagine what that would do to you, or how that would affect you in your life. What was it like growing up during World War II? Not too nice. Because <laughs> I'm living in London, we got you know, a lot of bombing. Uh, uh, my dad was working in London then. Uh, uh, but then, uh, when it first started, I can remember when I was probably 10 years old, the day they d- declared war. And it was Sunday. And uh, nobody, I mean, I suppose the adults had talked a lot about it, but, um, you know, I wasn't too aware of much. And I just, I remember saying to my sister, should we get under the bed? You know, like, like immediately the Germans were coming for us. So that was kind of interesting growing up, how people, you know, we couldn't show a light. We had to have this uh, blackout paper on the, on the windows. Some people painted their windows black, which is, must have been awful to get off. Um, so it was, um, I remember uh, when it started, and my sister uh, got married in the August of, of that year. Uh, 
so we had the wedding at home, and I remember that evening was when we had the uh, uh, the Battle of Britain, and the Germans, because we were in England, we could, they sent over all their planes, and they were having dogfights up there, and uh, we kept running outside to look at that, but then I kept running back. My dad had fixed up the cellar so we could sleep down there. Um, uh, so I kept going out looking, but then it scared me that I'd go run down into the cellar again and come back and look. Uh, yeah, that, that was a, a very scary time. And uh, we, we could, because of where we lived, we were close to railway stations where they do a lot of bombing. And uh, so we had, uh, um, we had a lot of, uh, you know, houses bombed around our area. Um, as I say, we would go down in the cellar to sleep at night. And uh, we did have a house, probably it was around the corner, but it was probably only six houses away from us that was badly bombed, and everybody was killed, you know, in that house. Um, my dad went out to check what, because you could tell it was close, and uh, stumbled over a body, which was absolutely horrible for him. I remember going to school or something, and the siren would sound. And uh, I remember this one day I darted into, there were some uh, like apartment type houses down the street from us. And they had little porches with glass doors. And I remember getting going in there when the siren sounded. Uh, and, and I thought, I was, what a silly place to go because <laughs> there was all this glass in there. Uh, but then eventually, as I say, it changes you what you would have been doing in your life. Not only did Margie see the devastation of World War II, she had some personal loss as well. At 14 years old, Margie's father passed away. She told me the story. She said it was in the middle of the night. Her father sat up in bed and her mother asked him, Honey, what's wrong? And he said, oh, nothing, I just, I just need a smoke. And that night, he had a heart attack. Perfectly healthy, she said. It was quite a shock to all of them. To add even more hurt and pain, her brother was off fighting in Africa during World War II. So when he came home a year later, adjustment to life without dad, that must have been hard. I don't think I dwelt on it too much because of how old I was. Because uh, I miss my dad a lot. Uh, Were you was, close? Huh? Were you close? Oh yeah, yeah. Everybody was close in my family, you know. Uh, I remember as a kid one of the things I used to do, and I don't know if it was just on a Friday evening, but I'd go to the. Uh, you used to try, go to uh, work on the underground, um, and I'd go and meet him. And then we'd walk home hand in hand. And I think then he used to give me my pocket money. So, <laughs> uh, but he, he, was, he was a good dad, yeah. yeah. I'm so thankful that Margie has memories of her father, those sweet memories that she holds in her heart. While I was there, she showed me a picture of herself sitting on her daddy's lap 
I could tell she was a daddy's girl. There's nothing like a sweet relationship between father and daughter. The war had just ended and time, of course, moved forward, leading Margie to meet her husband, Bill Bates, an American boy. We met at an ice skating rink in uh, Richmond, England. My girlfriend and I, that I worked with, uh, once in a while I'd go home with her and we'd go skating. Uh, I wasn't much of a skater, but uh, if I skated with somebody, (laughs) it was okay. So we were there this night, and uh, a friend of his, who I had now, I can't remember how I had met him, but anyway, he was a skater. He was in the Air Force with Bill, um, and he had brought Bill to the skating rink. Bill didn't skate at all. Um, So, you know, he introduced me to him, and that was it. So he, he took me to the station because we both had to get the train to go home. And uh, so I, th- I think uh, after that, we just dated. Did you hit it off right away? Yeah, yeah. What did you think of him when you first saw him? Well, I, I wasn't. Uh, I just went over and talked to him. I never thought about him being the one. <laughs> you know, you meet some people and they're, oh, you know, taken in by their looks or whatever. But, uh, so he was, um, uh, actually, he was the first person I took home, even though I had lots of boyfriends before that. Uh, and I, I was just 21 and he was 20. So I, because he didn't have any family here, you know, I took him home first time to dinner, and uh, <laughs> it was kind of funny because he didn't eat this later, but when we were first there, um, it was Sunday dinner, so he had a big dinner, and uh, he, he said, could he have some bread with some uh, jelly? Everybody thought, jam and bread, you know. <laughs> seems so funny um, but that was I guess he was young and that's what he'd maybe eaten anyway so he right away he enjoyed being with family and getting to come over and uh, um, so he just you know, my family liked him right away but they thought some things that he ate were a little bit strange <laughs> and when we come back more from Margie Bates and Faith's visit visit to the villages. And, well, Bill was an American boy. And that's what Margie saw. And we learned there, Margie lost her, her dad way too early at 14. When we come back, this unlikely story from the villages, this lady from London, how did she get to the United States? More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we return to Faith's conversation 
with Margie Bates. We learned that Margie grew up in London at the toughest time in London's history, no doubt. And that was the siege of the Nazis on London itself, the firebombings, the attacks. And, well, she met an American boy. While she was there, she lost her dad. And we picked things up where Faith left off. After dating for a handful of years, they got married. And Bill's time serving in England was up. So both of them were moving back to the States. Well, back to the States for Bill. Not so much back home for Margie. One can only imagine what that must have been like. Picking yourself up and moving to a whole new country. But not only that, she was going to be living with her in-laws. Were you homesick when you came? Oh yeah, terribly. (laughs) Because I had gone from living in London most of my life. Um, We moved to London when I was five. Um, And then we went straight to Bill's parents who had a rice farm in Arkansas. They were really nice, but he, he went to work on the farm and left me, you know, with his mother. <laughs> and we had the, you know, jet lag, so um, I probably didn't get up till 10 o'clock in the morning. And I was, she was very nice, but I think she, whether she decided she wasn't going to wait on me or something, but I expected, like, my family would have you know, made tea or made me breakfast. I don't know, perhaps she made me breakfast. But anyway, that that first day was awful, I think. And, but she was very nice, but I just didn't feel like it was my house. I mean, I would help her do washing up, and, and we did the washing, the laundry together. So, yeah, I got, you know, I got to be okay with her. But I really couldn't wait to get out of there. I did a lot of crying in the bathroom. <laughs> I mean, I didn't stay there for hours and cry. I would just, you know, get a little upset. Bathroom's always a good place to go. and Nobody's going to interfere with <laughs> you doing. So it, it was a big, big change. Culture shock, I guess you call it. There's nothing quite like the feeling of homesickness. It's hard. It seems like all you want is a hug from your mother. I'm sure for Margie, the food was different. The place was different. So adjustment was incredibly difficult. Change? No one's really quite ready for it, I would say. Change is necessary oftentimes. It strengthens and grows us in ways that we otherwise wouldn't have. Would your family think about you coming here? (laughs) My mother thought... Oh, I thought Bill would just go home when it was done. And I said, (laughs) I wasn't going to date somebody that long just to say, oh, well, goodbye. (laughs) So uh, they they never, I think they didn't like it, but they liked him. And uh, they never said anything bad that I shouldn't be doing this or whatever. So... uh, and I think when you're that young, you don't... Um, I knew I would miss them, but you don't stop to think about all that stuff, you know. So... Do you still miss England? Yeah. 
I, I mean, you get to a point where wherever you are is, is home. Um, but I, I was fortunate enough that I went often enough, you know. Um. So after some time of living in the country of Arkansas, basically in the middle of nowhere, Margie and her husband Bill made a road trip. They set out on their journey from Arkansas to California. An 1,800-mile journey with a five-week-old baby in their backseat. But they were determined. This was an opportunity for Bill to be able to go to a good school. Well, I, I had no idea how far away it was. And we drove and uh, uh, in the summer. And I'm sure my in-laws must have thought we were crazy. Didn't have good motels in those days or hotels. And I remember stopping uh, because I would go take a look at it. I didn't want to go in some flea bad place. <laughs> but um, none of them were great in those days. They're not at all like hotels now. Uh, so I remember like the one night when we uh, when we stopped and then washing baby bottles, you know, in the little bathroom sink, I guess it was. So we were a bit crazy. Margie and Bill loved California. After living in California for a handful of years and having a couple kids along the way as well, Margie's husband, Bill, well, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, which is a disorder of the central nervous system that affects movement, often including tremors and handshaking, which meant he had to quit his job. Parkinson's disease is actually what led them to the villages. We had been living in uh, Chula Vista in San Diego County, and uh, we had a very big house. And we also, because of Bill having Parkinson's, we didn't have a good support group. So we thought, well, we would come out here and take a look, not thinking that we bought the next day. And what was it like when he was diagnosed with Parkinson's? It sort of wasn't shocking because I didn't know anything much about it. So, you know, it was one of those things that, oh, you know, we'll take care of this sort of thing. But then, because he really wasn't having symptoms, he was having a little handshaking. It was strange because he said, oh, that was, uh, uh, his father had had a little bit of that. Well, I had never noticed his father having it. So it took a while for the doctors to diagnose that. But for a long time, it was, um, didn't really bother anything much. He always kept up his exercising and uh, used to go to the pool and work out. I think I would say probably until we came here, which then he probably had it about several years and, and didn't really stop him doing anything. And the same when we came here, but there's been a gradual uh, thing where it got worse. You know? And you could not convince him that he couldn't do stuff because he was a man. <laughs> Don't go outside, honey, you can't do that. Yes, I can. <laughs> it wasn't all bad, you know, like especially at first me made good friends with the Parkinson's group. It's something I think that takes, you know, you just sort of live with it. 
another thing in life that you put up with, you know. After living there for a while, of course, Parkinson's doesn't tend to get better. Instead, Bill got worse and eventually had to go into rehab. But the last time he was in a rehab, and uh, he was supposed to be there for good uh, because of falling and things like that. Um, so he, they did not have a room for him. And so I said, you know, you're coming home. That's, and I wish I had made that decision a long time before. Uh, so anyway, he came home, and I can remember now, it was around Christmas time, I think. Still okay to a point. He was starting to have trouble with his swallowing, which is what happens with Parkinson's. Invariably, that's what happens to everybody. And when we come back, our final segment with Faith and Margie Bates. And this is our continuing series. Our 21-year-old producer, our newest uh, addition to our American stories, on the road in the villages in Florida, bringing us Margie Bates' story. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we return to our Faith Garcia, joining Margie Bates at the Villages. And when we left off last, Margie's husband, Bill, well, things were getting worse because of his bout with Parkinson's disease. And then, of course, he was losing weight, and uh, anyway, hospice people did not want him uh, to be eating in case he choked, um, which, you know, I was quite upset with that because, to me, he wasn't getting any worse. So they sort of stopped feeding him except for, um, you know, soft foods and drinks. And he had, he was fortunate, he had this wonderful caregiver, Rosa. And uh, so then it was just, downhill from there uh, and I was looking I have a, a picture of he and I when he was much younger and uh, I was sort of comparing how he looked you know because he got so thin and so pale uh, but it was almost like I didn't see him like that you know uh, I guess that's what happens when you be married a long, long time, you know. So we would have been married uh, 63 years in the May following. So you feel like you just saw him still as his young self, or? Yeah, well, I, I didn't like the way he looked, um, but, you know, that's what happens when you don't... I mean, he lost such a lot of weight because he hospice... Um, they had their own way of doing things, and he would always still try and get out of bed. 
and and up till they started with him, uh, he he could do that with help or put him in the wheelchair. But then they decided that it would be better if he didn't get out of bed, and uh, he would still insist he was okay to get up. He could walk. Nobody could tell him that he couldn't. So then they. Uh, uh, the nurse then that would come, uh, she said, okay, we'll let you see if you can. So she got on one side of him and Rosa got on the other, and then he started to stand up, but, but he couldn't. By then, he really got too weak. Just last year, Bill Bates passed away. And after Bill's passing, Margie was left with a lot of reflection Having the same person by your side for nearly 60 years and then having them die, that's extremely difficult. Not only that, but people who have lost longtime spouses describe living without them like trying to walk around with one leg. March 11th. Was it from Parkinson's? Well, you know, they say you don't pass away from Parkinson's, but you pass away from what, which doesn't make sense to me, because you pass away from what Parkinson's does to you. And uh, he was—he um, had a few falls, which is natural for Parkinson's, and uh, had some injuries from that. How did you deal with it when you felt lonely after Bill passed away? How did I feel? Uh, well, it's hard to describe, you know. You just feel lost. Um, I, I just, you, you have an awful lot of looking back and thinking, I should have done this. Because when you're together all those years, uh, you know, I can see times when I wasn't the best of people, you know just like anybody else. So, uh, I mean, I didn't do anything <laughs> bad, but, you know, get mad with each other and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah. So that brought a lot of stuff back to where, uh, you know, I felt a little guilty about some things. Yeah, the only thing when he was going through uh, the last year or so, because he loved sweets, and the sweets affected his medication, so it made him think he could do things and get a little mad. Um, and, and I think to myself, you know, I was really very cautious about him having this. And uh, he loved bananas. And um, if he, it was kind of funny because I, he'd have a banana with his breakfast, but if he was, didn't matter how many he'd had, if he was driving by there in his wheelchair, he'd just reach up and grab a banana, put a big smile on his face, and then I'd say, you can't have that. <laughs> so, you know, it makes you think some of those times I should have let him have it, you know, but you just, when you're looking after them, you just do what you think is best for them, you know. It's sweet that she still saw him as her Bill. She still loved him and wanted to take care of him. 
it really makes you think. It makes you think about how you treat those around you, especially your family. Are those fights that we have, the bickering, things that we can't seem to let go, the little grudges, are they really worth that last word that we want to get in? Margie certainly didn't think so. She didn't have huge regrets, but she did wish that she could have taken back some things. Her self-reflection and her introspection should be emulated. We should consider how we love those around us as well. And maybe there are more things that we need to just let go. Margie has now been learning to readjust to life without Bill, along with overcoming injuries from falls that she has had herself. So she tries to move forward for motivation and confidence because it's easy to lose your confidence. But Margie refuses to live life in fear. And she moves forward, and at 87 years old, she's starting a new chapter in her life. I mean, that leaves the rest of us without excuse. From, from having all the things that happened to me, you know, get fracture in my back and then not walking for a long time. I mean, I could walk, but resting. Gradually, I think I lost my confidence uh, that I had before. Uh, but it's, uh, it's coming back. Confidence in what? In myself, I think, you know, because you spend so much time you not doing anything, and that wasn't me, you know. So, uh, and, and I try to uh, be more confident because, uh, you know, it's gradually coming back. It, it took a while, you know, and I hadn't been driving for so many months uh, to do that and to worry about if I fell again. But uh, that's all getting past, so I feel like I'm more myself. You know, and then I can tell because for a long time there, um, I I didn't really want to do anything. I couldn't focus as what happened. Uh, you know, I think I can do this or not. I'll watch TV. You know. So starting back doing things for yourself was difficult. It, well, I don't. I wouldn't say difficult. It was just. Slower, I had to, you know, because I couldn't move too fast anyway. So, like taking a shower, I'd have to, you know, give myself plenty of time. I find it's recently, when you think about somebody dying, it's it's very hard for me to think. You know, one minute they're there, and the next minute they're not. You know, like where did they go? Um, it's probably you'll go through that when you get older. It's just not something you think about much, you know. Oh, they've passed away, you know. But um, it makes you think a little bit more about death somehow. I mean, you always assume, oh, they've gone to heaven. And then, then, uh, then you wonder, well... You know, I was brought up a Catholic, so you always heard about purgatory. And then sometimes I think it's purgatory on earth, you know. Because if you read the rest of the Bible, um, 
you know, and Christ said, you will be with me in heaven. Margie has brought us a lot of things to consider. Life, death, family. There's so many other wonderful things that she shared. But I'm just thankful that I got the time that we did. Thanks, Margie, for sharing your story with me. And thanks, Faith, for doing that. And my goodness, what an honest voice. Straight as an arrow. It's why we love talking to old people and kids. No nonsense. No time for it. No reason for it. No airs. We look forward to the next next story from the villages. Our Faith, Margie Bates, and Bill Bates. We got to know him. Married 60 years, and you could feel the pain and the loss. This is Our American Stories. <laughs> 